Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name's Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. together. God, we celebrate the many, many ways in which you are at work among us here at Asbury United Methodist Church. And as we come into a time of uh, looking at scripture and studying your word and hearing a message, I ask that you would speak through me, if necessary, in spite of me. Put me behind the cross of the Lord Jesus so that he might be lifted up and glorified. We pray all these things in his powerful and his wonderful name. Amen. Well, today we finish up our brief Um, two-part message series on the sacraments that we've called sacramentum. I'll remind us that sacramentum is the Latin word for oath. Um, The word sacramentum finds its origin in ancient Rome, where if a man were to join the military and go into battle, what that man would first do before anything is he would take a sacramentum. In other words, he would take an oath of loyalty to Rome. Uh, He would say that he would serve Rome, that he would stand beside Rome, that he would be faithful to Rome, no matter the cost. And Christianity, of course, was born 2,000 years ago in the context of the Roman Empire. And so the early Christians, those first followers of Jesus, uh, they were familiar with this concept of a sacramentum. They knew about this concept of a sacramentum. Only what they did is they redefined it a bit, and they associated it with the sacraments. When we partake of the sacraments, when we participate in the sacraments, the early Christians said, we are pledging ourselves, we are submitting ourselves, we are giving ourselves, not to the Roman Empire, not to the Republic of Rome, not to Caesar, the emperor who's the head of the empire, but rather to Jesus Christ and the kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated. Now, as we mentioned last week, over the years, the Catholic Church has come to recognize seven sacraments. Uh, do you remember the seven sacraments for Catholics? Marriage, ordination, confirmation, baptism, communion, last rites, reconciliation, or confession. Those are the seven sacraments for our Catholic sisters and brothers. United Methodists, on the other hand, and of course, Asbury is a United Methodist congregation, United Methodists, along with most Protestants, narrow the list of sacraments to two, baptism and communion. And as we highlighted last week, the reason we recognize baptism and communion as sacraments and not these other five that Catholics do, it's not that the other five aren't important. It's not that the other five don't have their place. It's not that the other five aren't rooted in scripture, but rather Jesus participated in them and he specifically commanded them. He participated in them, and he specifically commanded them. First, he participated in them. Jesus himself was baptized, wasn't he? By John the Baptist in the Jordan River, just before he began his public ministry. And then toward the end of his ministry, as he was in the upper room with the disciples, the very last night of his life, uh, right before he was betrayed by Judas, he celebrated the Last Supper with his apostles. Uh, So he participated in them, but then he also commanded them. Um, After the resurrection, in Matthew's gospel, we're told that Jesus got up on a mountain and he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, when he was sharing the Last Supper, um, he said to his disciples, do these things as you remember me. He participated in the sacraments and he specifically commanded them. And so last week, uh, we kicked off this series and we looked at the sacrament of baptism. 
Uh, we talked about the ins and outs of baptism, what baptism entails, what baptism involves, all the different dimensions of baptism. And if you missed that message, uh, you can find it on our Asbury website, um, asburymaitland.org. Uh, you can find it posted on there. Today, as we wrap up this sermon series, we're going to turn our attention to communion. What does our church teach and believe about communion? Clearly, communion is important. Otherwise, why would we celebrate this sacrament every month, which we're going to do today? Or why would we put this table at the center of our worship space? I think all of us here today would agree that something holy is happening when we come to the Lord's table. But what exactly is that holy thing? How is Jesus present in the sacrament of Holy Communion? Is it appropriate for children to receive communion? Some people wonder about that because not every church allows children to receive Holy Communion. Or what about somebody who's struggling with sin, struggling with brokenness, and is unsure if they should receive? Should that person still come forward and receive the sacrament? These are some of the questions that we're going to tackle in this message. You know, one of the things I appreciate most about communion is that when it comes down to it, this table is a meal. And meals are important to us as human beings. Meals are sacred to us as human beings because meals are one of the primary places where stories are shared. Uh, human beings are built to eat, but we're not only built to eat, we're also built for stories, aren't we? We're built to tell stories, hear stories. It's no wonder then that stories and mealtimes go together. Stories and mealtimes go together. Um, adults come home from work, kids get home from school, Everybody's been going their separate ways throughout the day, you know, running frantically out in the community. But then finally at the table, ideally, everybody's back together again. And so the question gets raised, what'd you do today? How was your day? And then the sharing begins, right? Unless, of course, you have teenagers, and then maybe the sharing's pretty minimal. Uh, but ordinarily, we share pieces of our lives and stories together at mealtimes. Um, I was reminded of this in a pretty powerful way about five years ago, uh, Amanda and I got married in uh, May of 2016. So seven months later, uh, we were celebrating our very first Christmas as a married couple. Uh, this is before Hannah and I were born. And so Amanda's mom came over from Melbourne on the East Coast, and uh, my dad drove up from Fort Lauderdale, and uh, we were just sharing Christmas dinner together, the four of us, and then my dad started talking. Now, I'll be honest, I was never tremendously close to my father when I was a child. Uh, he traveled a lot for work, and so um, I spent most of my time with my mom, and I was closer to her. But in recent years, since my mom's death, my dad and I have gotten closer. And uh, during Christmas dinner, he just starts sharing these stories from his childhood, stories that I'd never heard before. And when he got done sharing, I felt like I knew my dad on a deeper level, that the bond between us was stronger, not just because we broke bread, but because we shared stories. Stories have this way of doing that. Stories and mealtimes go together. Well, when Jesus established Holy Communion, he was doing more than sharing a meal with the disciples. He was sharing a story with them. The story that Jesus began by sharing was the story of the Exodus because Jesus established Holy Communion during the Jewish festival of what? Do you remember what it was? It starts with the letter P. Passover. He established Holy Communion during the Jewish festival of Passover. And so Jews had been celebrating Passover for hundreds of years by the time Jesus came on the scene. And as you may remember from the Gospels, Jesus was in Jerusalem. He was in the capital city, the holy city, the very last week of his life. He had come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, riding on a donkey. He was there with the disciples. He was there with literally thousands upon thousands of Jewish people. 
And the whole reason all these Jews had descended to Jerusalem, or ascended to Jerusalem, I should say, was to celebrate the Passover. And the Passover, of course, commemorates the Exodus. The Exodus is the central story in Judaism, the defining story of Judaism. The Exodus is when God liberated God's people from slavery in Egypt. And so during the Passover meal, the Jews would recall this sacred story. They would talk about how their ancestors were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They were suffering under Pharaoh, who would break their backs, give them building projects, all kinds of building projects. So they cried out to God for mercy and deliverance, and God sent them Moses as their leader. But before Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, what God did to demonstrate his sovereignty over the world was he sent a series of plagues upon the Egyptians. Do you remember how many plagues God sent? 10. Uh, God sent the frogs. God sent the locusts. God turned the waters of the Nile River into blood. But the last plague that God sent was by far the most terrifying of them all, the death of the firstborn. Essentially what happened was the angel of death came upon Egypt, killing every firstborn son along with every firstborn male cattle. The Israelites, though, were spared from this awful tragedy because the night before, the day before, God told Moses to um, tell the Israelites to take a lamb, to sacrifice the lamb, to put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, signifying to the angel of death to pass over the homes of the Hebrews, uh, which is where the word Passover comes from because the angel of death passed over their homes. And then the story goes, when Pharaoh finally relented and said to God's people, get out of here, I don't want you here. Well, the people left so quickly that the bread that they were baking didn't even have time to rise, which is also why Passover is sometimes called the festival of unleavened bread. And so during the Passover meal, what Jewish people would do is they would eat a lamb, um, they would eat bitter herbs, not because the herbs tasted good, but to remind them of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. They would consume bread and wine. And then as Jesus and the disciples were sharing in this meal and sharing in the story, Jesus added a whole nother layer to the story that the disciples weren't anticipating. And so with that being said, uh, listen carefully to what it says here in the Gospel of Luke, our first scripture reading. This is from Luke chapter 22. Now the festival of unleavened bread, because again, the Passover was sometimes called the festival of unleavened bread. The festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Now, to be clear, when Jesus spoke these words about his body being broken, his blood being spilled, when Jesus spoke these words, these words were not a part of the Passover ritual. And so Jesus was pointing beyond the Exodus story when he was speaking these words, and he was pointing to another story. He was pointing to the story of salvation. Jesus was basically saying that in a few hours, he was going to be arrested. He was going to be put up on a cross, that his body would be broken, his blood would be spilled, and that the purpose of these things was to liberate human beings from slavery. But slavery to who? Not slavery to Pharaoh, not slavery to the Egyptians, but rather slavery to a greater oppressor, the greatest oppressor of all, sin and evil and death and the grave. Jesus was saying that his death, his crucifixion, was going to liberate all human beings from these things. 
And so folks, when we gather here at this table, as we do in this church every month, we are recalling the story of salvation, how God has come for us in Jesus Christ. We are repeating a story worth repeating. Some stories are worth repeating, right? Fred Craddock says that when he was growing up, his dad hardly ever went to church. He would go every once in a while, maybe Christmas, maybe Easter, but more often than not, his Sunday mornings were spent at home while the whole family would go to church. Craddock's dad would always say, church don't care about me. All the church wants is another name and another pledge. That's it. Just another name, another pledge. They don't care about me. Craddock's mom would try her best to get her husband to go to church, but he would always say the same thing. They don't care about me. All they want is another name and another pledge. That's it. Well, eventually, his father's bad lifestyle choices caught up with him. He was down to 73 pounds at the VA hospital. He was dying. The doctors had to remove his throat. They inserted a metal tube, leaving him unable to eat or to speak. So Fred Craddock got the call from his mom. Your dad's dying. There's not a whole lot of time. You need to come see him and say goodbye. So he got in an airplane. He flew up to Tennessee, I believe it was, walked inside the hospital room. He said that the first thing he noticed when he walked inside that hospital room, there were flowers all over the place. Flowers as far as the eye could see. Not only that, but there was a stack of cards about 20 inches thick next to the bed. Do you want to guess who sent those flowers and those cards? The people from his childhood church, about which his father would always say, they don't care about me. They just want another name and another pledge. That's it. So Craddock went over to the cards. He picked them up. His dad was too weak to read them. And he read each and every single one of them. Must have took him about an hour. After he finished, his dad grabbed a Kleenex box because, again, he wasn't able to speak. He picked up a pen, and he started to write something down. Now, his dad was never a well-educated guy, never made it past the eighth grade, but he was always a fan of Shakespeare. And he wrote down these words from Hamlet. In this harsh world, draw your breath in pain to tell my story. Socratic looked at his father, and he said, Daddy, what's your story? His father lifted a finger, pointed to all the flowers and all the cards, and then he wrote down three words. I was wrong. I was wrong. Until his father died, or until Craddock died in 2015, he spent the rest of his life telling his father's story. Because folks, when you have a story like that, when you have a story that's as good and powerful as that, it is worth repeating over and over and over again. When we gather here at this table, we are repeating a story worth repeating. We are remembering what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Do these things, as Jesus says, in remembrance of me. But our translation in English of the word remembrance in the Greek is a bit misleading. Because so often, when you and I hear that word remembrance, we think it simply means an intellectual recalling of events. We remember what Jesus has done like we remember Christmas five years ago. Or we remember visiting grandma when we were kids. But in the Greek, there's actually more going on here than that. We don't simply intellectually recall what Jesus has done. Instead, we experience the presence of Jesus in our midst. 
We don't simply intellectually recall what Jesus has done. We experience the presence of Jesus in our midst. Here at the table, the story of salvation is being played out to us in real time. So much so that we actually have an encounter with Jesus. Folks, we believe in some mysterious way that we can't fully articulate, that we can't fully explain, that we can't fully understand that the risen Jesus is actually at this table. That his presence is felt as we feast on the bread and the cup. Now, those in the Catholic Church, and I know some of you here today, you have a Catholic background. Those in the Catholic Church, when they describe the presence of Jesus in communion, they use this really fancy word, transubstantiation. How many of you have ever heard that word, transubstantiation? I see those of you who grew up Catholic, right? Uh, that's the $50 word. If you want to press your friends this afternoon at lunch, use the word transubstantiation. But when it comes down to it, what that basically means is in the Catholic Church, they believe that when the priest prays over the elements, that in some mysterious way, the substance of those elements changes into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. The outward appearance remains unchanged. It still looks like bread. It still looks like a cup. But the substance is changed and transformed into the literal body and blood of Jesus. Now, I want to be clear. United Methodists do not teach that. We do not uphold transubstantiation. However, we do uphold the real presence of Jesus Christ in communion. And the real presence of Jesus in communion, it isn't so much to be explained as it is to be experienced. And over the years, I have met people who have experienced Jesus at this table in some pretty incredible ways. In fact, I'll never forget, in the first church I was appointed to, it was Sunday morning, and uh, we were having communion that Sunday, like we are here today. It was the first of the month. Uh, the senior pastor was out of town, and so I was responsible for preaching, but I was also responsible for all the logistics of the service. And we had three services, 8 a.m., 9.30 a.m., 11 a.m., back to back to back. So there was a lot of rushing. I had just finished the first service. I was about to preach at the second service. Well, then I found out from some people that we didn't have any communion servers. And that was a crisis because, of course, we were going to be having communion. So I'm running up to people before the service. Hey, can you help out with communion? Can you help out with communion? And I found some folks, and they all said, yeah, we can do that. And I thought, okay, and no big deal. And so we had the service, and the service went well. I didn't think much of it. But then later on that week, I got a letter in the mail from one of those persons who would serve communion. Not an email, but an actual handwritten letter. Do you guys remember those? In the letter, the person said to me, you know, Pastor Chris, for a long time, I've been struggling at work. There's this person in my office, and uh, I got to be honest, I really find her hard to love. You ever known somebody who was hard to love? This person is rude, obnoxious, and undermines me constantly. And I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. I know what the Bible says, that we're called to love everybody, even our enemies, but I, I've really been struggling to love this person. So as I was driving to worship on Sunday morning, I was thinking about all this in my head, and I felt so conflicted because I knew that we were going to be receiving communion that day, and I thought to myself, how can I go to Jesus' table if I don't love somebody that Jesus cared enough to die for? So I made up my mind that day in the car, I'm not going to receive Holy Communion. I don't deserve it. I got too much sin. Then you came up to me before the service, not knowing about these internal struggles, not knowing about the decision that I made in the car, and you asked me if I would help serve. And I said yes wondering if maybe this was God's way of speaking to me. And then as I stood up there at the front of the worship area, I saw all these people coming forward, and I looked in their eyes. 
And I saw that they were broken like I was, that they were hurting like I was, yet Jesus was still inviting them to come. And I thought to myself, maybe Jesus is still welcoming me. Maybe Jesus is still inviting me despite all my sins and all my deficiencies, so I received communion that day. And I had a strong sense that I encountered Jesus, that I experienced for myself his love, his forgiveness, his grace. You see, folks, Jesus is really here at this table in some mysterious way. The risen Jesus is really here. And here at this table, he gives us the grace necessary to follow him in this world, to love people who are hard to love, to forgive people we may not want to forgive. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, he called communion a means of grace. Can you say this with me? A means of grace. What Wesley basically meant is that communion is a channel through which God gives us grace, and this grace that empowers us to be God's people in this world, to do the things that God wants us to do. Whenever we get ready to receive communion, as we'll do in a moment, either myself or another pastor will pray over the elements with these words. We'll say, God, make these elements be for us the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that we might indeed be for this world, Christ's body redeemed by his blood. Essentially, we're asking Jesus to meet us here at the table, and then once Jesus has met us at the table, to send us out as his representatives in the world, to be his hands and feet on this planet, to do work in his kingdom. You know, when we think about it, there's a lot going on in Holy Communion. There's way more than meets the eye. And that's why some people wonder if it's appropriate for children to receive communion. After all, these people will say, Children, they can't understand the depth of what's happening here. They need to wait until they're older or more mature so that they can truly appreciate this sacrament. You ever heard that before? And I hear where these folks are coming from. But I want to approach this question about children and communion from another angle. If Jesus is really present at this table, as we've already established, then folks, that pretty much settles the debate about children and communion for me. Because Jesus was crystal clear when he came to his attitude about children. Listen with me to what it says here in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we've already read from Luke, Luke 22. Well, this is what it says earlier, um, Luke chapter 18. One day some parents brought their little children to Jesus. Not even their big children, their little children. One day some parents brought their little children to Jesus so that he could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. We could just kind of picture this. Get out of here. You, you don't need to be here. Then Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. So if Jesus is present in Holy Communion and Jesus said, let the children come to me, who are we to stop children from receiving communion? Are they going to fully understand what's going on? Probably not. Can I be honest? I don't fully understand what's going on. And I'm a pastor. But thanks be to God that the efficacy of the sacrament does not depend on my cognitive understanding, but instead on God's faithfulness. I love what Will, what Will Willimon says about this. Uh, he's a bishop, or was a bishop, in the United Methodist Church. He says, Jesus' command is to take and eat, not to take and understand. Now listen, that's not to say that there's no value in exploring the significance of communion. Of course there is. Otherwise, I would have gone to all the trouble of writing this message. But the, at the end of the day, our theology only gets us so far. We submit ourselves to the mystery of grace that far exceeds anything that we could ever understand or put into words.
And I want to say one more thing about children in communion. Some years ago, I was having this conversation at a new membership class, and we were talking about United Methodists and what United Methodists believe about the sacraments, and you know, we started talking about children in communion. There was this guy in the new membership class. I would guess that he was probably in his 70s. And he said to me, Pastor, when I was growing up, I was never allowed to receive Holy Communion because I was told that I was too small. I was one of only several children in that whole church. So there were some Sunday mornings when it was just me as a child. I can remember seeing all the adults go forward as I sat in my seat all by myself. I felt so left out. He was in his 70s. He still remembered that. Folks, I never want the kids who grew up here or the kids who grew up in any church for that matter to look back on their time here or some other place and say, I felt left out. Instead, I want them to say, I felt included, amen? I felt like I was a part of something. I felt like I was a part of this family. And actually, if we think about it, we don't just want that for kids, right? We want that for everybody because we recognize the reality that in Jesus Christ, God has come for all of us. There's not a single person in the world for whom Jesus hasn't come, for whom Jesus hasn't died. And that's why, as United Methodists, we observe what's called an open table, an open table. This is central to our theology of communion, where we don't stop anybody from coming to receive the sacrament. Instead, we invite everybody to turn from their sin, to receive God's grace, to taste, see, and know that the Lord is good that his love is real. I started off this message by talking about the importance of stories and mealtimes. So I want to close this message by sharing a story that happened over a meal, a story that changed somebody's life. This story comes from a friend of mine who's a pastor. Uh, his name is Will, not Will Can Dust, uh, although I know Will has his own stories. Uh, but this is another colleague of mine named Will, serves a church in the Jacksonville area. Will says that when he was growing up, he didn't know his biological father. Took off when he was small. His mom dated some different guys, but then when he was six years old, she got remarried to a stepfather. We'll call the stepfather Jim. Will says that Jim was a nice guy. He was always polite to him, treated him respectfully, but he always felt kind of detached. He never saw Jim as anything more than his stepdad. That changed when he was 12 years old. Jim invited uh, Will out to dinner, just the two of them, nobody else. And after they finished their meal, he asked him if he wanted dessert. And Will knew that something unusual was going on because Jim was really cheap and would never order dessert. But he decided to take advantage of it. And he said, okay, I'll get to get some ice cream. And got some ice cream. He was eating the ice cream. Well, as he was enjoying his ice cream, Jim reached out across the table and he grabbed Will's hand and he said, Will, I'm going to adopt you. I want to be your father. I want to put you in my family. He said that was the first time when he saw Jim as more than his stepdad, he saw Jim as his father. And this colleague of mine, Will, he says that whenever he comes forward to receive Holy Communion, he pictures the risen Jesus reaching out to him through the elements of bread and the cup and saying to him, I want to put you in my family. I want to give you a place to belong. Folks, the risen Jesus is saying that to all of us this morning. You belong here. You are mine. 
So through Holy Communion, we recall the story of salvation, this story that is worth repeating over and over again. We remember what Jesus has done, how he's gone to the cross to be crucified for our sins. We encounter Jesus in our midst in some mysterious way. We receive the grace necessary to be God's people in this world, and we find a place of belonging, a place of inclusion. No wonder this table is so important to us. No wonder we observe this sacrament as often as we do. Stories and mealtimes go together. And the story of God's love for us in Jesus is made alive at this table in a significant way. Praise be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so as we prepare this morning to come to the Lord's table, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Thank you, God, for your love for us in Jesus. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your forgiveness that far exceeds anything that we could ever understand or put into words. God, there's not a single person among us right now. There's not a single person who has ever existed for whom you haven't died and come. So Lord Jesus, this morning we pray that you indeed would encounter us here at this table that you would help us to understand our worth and our value, our identity in you, and then having met us here, having encountered us here, that you would send us out on this planet to be your ambassadors, your representatives. Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, we pray that you would fall upon these elements of bread and the cup, that you would make these elements be for us the body and blood of Jesus, that as I said a moment ago, we might indeed be for this world, Christ's body redeemed by his blood. We pray all these things in the strong, the precious, the mighty name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. It's the body of Christ that's been broken for us. Remember, folks, Jesus was broken on the cross, so you don't have to be broken anymore. It's the blood of Christ the cup of salvation given to us. Uh, if you didn't receive communion elements as you came into worship this morning, I would invite you to simply raise your hand. Or if you need gluten-free elements, you can also raise your hand about that. Carla's standing over here in the back, and she would love to assist you with communion. Uh, again, want to remind us that this is an open table. It doesn't matter to us if you consider yourself a part of Asbury or the United Methodist Church because this table does not belong to Asbury or the United Methodist Church. This table belongs to Jesus, and Jesus invites to his table anybody who desires to come to be his follower on this planet, to live as his disciple. I also want to invite those of you worshiping with us at home to go into your kitchen, your pantry, grab whatever elements might be available to you so that you can participate in Holy Communion with us. At this time, I'd like to invite you, uh, as you're able, to unwrap the communion elements. I know it's a bit tricky. I have this packet over here, and so the bread, the wafer is at the very top. I want to instruct us to receive this together. So I'm going to raise my hand, and I'm going to say the body of Christ broken for us, and then we'll receive it together. The body of Christ broken for us. And we'll do the same thing with the cup. The blood of Christ spilled for us. Thanks be to God.
Amen.